Welcome back to the Four Gardens Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Ifshin. On this show, we feature conversations with people making contributions in the areas of health, nature, creativity, and service. We explore their work and their personal practice to see what's contributed to their success. We also invite guests to share about a current personal challenge and how they're growing through it. I'm really excited today to have Liz Glazer, a new friend on the show, hilarious comedian and really like great energy, fascinating person to learn from. So thanks so much, Liz, for coming on. Let's jump in. Thank you. Liz, yes. <laughs> Good to have you Hi, here. Jay. Yes, thanks for wanting so, to be the first guest on the show. Yes. Go yeah, ahead. I really appreciate being here. I also, I feel like I want to share this with you that um, just because it, it relates to habits and some of the things that we've talked about and that I imagine are related to the, the themes of the podcast. But sometimes, and, and the reason I say this now is one of the times was right before getting on to podcast with you today when I have like one minute or five minutes until I have something else to do. That's like one of the most productive moments for me, not for like starting a big project, but like things like brushing my teeth, which like whenever someone introduces how easy something is and then they're like well it's like you brush your teeth every day i'm like i'll let me just stop you right there because that is for me it's not that i don't do it because i i do it but it's not like the easiest thing in the world for me and if if i were like the idea that it's like oh this unconscious thing that just like happens on its own not true for me and specifically mornings when like I might not have something super early or whatever, like last night I had something super late at night. And so then I was like getting up early or to do this, even though it's 1142, but I was working until three in the morning. And so whatever, but anyway, so knowing like, okay, I have one minute until I'm supposed to get on with you. That was when I was brushing my teeth and the tea kettle, which I had put on maybe like two or three minutes before was whistling. And I felt like such a productive habit hacking genius in that moment, because I'm like, I'm going to get my teeth brushed and hydrated. And I scheduled this podcast at exactly the time when it's like efficient for me to have awoken from a late night even. And I just felt like I had hacked life. So I don't know what that means. I guess it's all downhill from here is one way of looking <laughs> at it. But obviously, I mean that as a joke. And, uh, you know, hopefully it's a good start yes. to the day. It feels like it. I love so anyway, thank you for having me and my brushed teeth. Yes. Thanks for bringing your brushed teeth. Your smile looks beautiful on the stream here. Thank you. And uh, I love that. I completely relate to that as a self-employed person to how much and how important it is for me to set in these times into my life in order yeah. and then everything kind of ramps up to that. I completely relate to that. That's when the activities start building up and snowballing as I get closer to the, 
to that yeah. time. So I really need that too. And I think this can be a big part of our conversation today. Later, we're going to talk about habits, Liz and I, it's how we sort of bonded first is yeah. I was at one of Liz's comedy shows. So funny. And, uh, we started talking about, um, I didn't get to see you afterwards, but I loved it. And we, um, we yes. talked about a book, Atomic Habits, that Liz recommended to me. And I love this mm -hmm. kind of stuff. These sort of personal development is the theme of the show. But yeah. also for me, thinking about these small strategies that the book covers was a really fascinating read for me. And so I want yeah. to talk about that. But before we get into that, sure. I'd love to have our guests, um, sorry, our, our audience get to know you a little bit better. Oh, um, yeah. And so let's talk first. Um, I know a lot of people there uh, listening in, in my life are thinking about making a jump from a comfortable career, you know, what they're used to into a creative field. And so your story mm -hmm. is very much uh, like that. And so I'd love to hear, yeah. tell people about your career journey and maybe some of the considerations yeah. around the changes you made. Yeah. Well, um, so the, the joke version of it is, well, I'm a stand-up comedian and I wasn't always a stand-up comedian. I used to be Alice from the Brady Bunch. No, I, <laughs> I used to be a law professor. That was Alice's other job. She didn't get much of a backstory, but like I, I did. And that is the typical route to stand-up comedy, which I'm sure all of the listeners are aware that like, if you want to be a stand-up comedian, generally speaking, you go to law school for three years, then you practice for two years, then you teach for nine years, and then you give it up and do stand-up comedy. And people are like, why did you go to law school? And I'm like, I'm setting up a joke. I'm going to tell in approximately 14 years, okay? I'm a planner. So that being the joke version of my real, you know, life trajectory, like all of the facts are accurate because I'm a lawyer and I can't stop. Uh, and um, in terms of the how of it, I mean... It's, you know, I think with these things and maybe with all things, there's, you know, there's really just particular stories. And I guess like as many times as I've like thought about the story and told the story and written about the story and whatever, I think that like really the advice piece that I would give just just because I'm always thinking about that. I'm like, yeah, I can indulge and tell my story all day and all night. But like if somebody's listening and they're like, how do I know, you know, how to make a jump. If I want to make a jump, I, I don't, I'm, I, I really want to highlight the pieces that could tell you how to do that. But one thing that I really remember is this was like well before comedy even became something I really knew about for myself or, or even really otherwise. I mean, obviously I knew comedy existed, but I never really thought about it as a career path for sure or anything that related directly to me other than like laughing, which I did. Um, but I remember I was in my job and I had this job being a law professor was considered, you know, one of the really great jobs within law. And it still is. I mean, when I interviewed for my job as a law professor, people were like, this is the best job in the world, best job in the world, best job in the world. Almost like, like somebody paid them to say that. And I don't think they were being disingenuous, but it's a different story in the sense that people having that job would say that about the job. than, for example, working at a law firm, not to say that there aren't people who love their jobs working at law firms. I have a story I tell about somebody who really affected my life when I was working as, as a, a lawyer in practice and was just like so tickled by his job. And one morning 
I come in, I was like totally the most tired. I had so many, you know, all nighters that week or whatever. And he's like, Liz, are you having fun? And not in a being fresh sort of way, in a way like he had a crush on our job and he couldn't not talk about how fun it was. And so he was like, are you having fun, Liz? And I was like, in my head, I'm like, I didn't even think fun was on the table. Like, maybe this is fine. And, you know, of course I was like, yeah, totally. And then I went back to my desk where I was, you know, had to read the emails I was CC'd on and didn't understand for two years. But like, in any event, that job, a lot of people, I would say, who are practicing lawyers, at least when I was practicing, it was like normal, you know, to not love it. Um, again, not to say that that's a good thing, but just like in the realm of the many associates who would not end up being partners and would leave to do something else um, at big law firms, not everybody loved it. But when I was teaching, it was such a thing that everybody was like, this is the best job in the world. And so I say that because I think that it's relevant in terms of uh, the, the level of happiness that I might have expected to have in it. I did have a lot of creative freedom in that job. So it wasn't like I was shackled and not able to be creative or whatever. I, I did have a lot of that latitude in terms of you know what I focused on. And yet I didn't feel alive by you know, the engagement that I had with my work every so often, you know, because if I was writing a big paper, I mean, I would write these 80 page law review articles that were pretty intense. And like, you know, I did achieve a kind of flow state in certain moments writing them for sure. And yet I felt that there was some difference between the way that I felt about writing those papers and the way it seemed to me that some of my colleagues who were among the people who said this is the best job in the world felt when they were writing theirs. And I remember taking out my phone and Googling, how do you know what you want? <laughs> and for some reason that's coming up for me as the story to share or the part of the story to share, because I think that that moment really, I don't know. I mean, it's 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 a ton of privilege that goes into that moment. And and again, like I'm always conscious of that because I had a really good gig. And I think that sometimes when I've read the stories about leaving your, you know, whatever they call it, like golden handcuffs or stuff like that, the the jobs maybe not always, but the jobs that I've read about are just like I was working 90 hours a week and chained to my desk and all that. And that sounds hard for sure in a certain way, but also I think it can happen and it happened to me when I even got closer to and, and was maybe even living a rough approximation of the dream that I didn't really know that I was like going for at the time, but like I, I got to speak at the front of the room and even get laughs. I got to write about mostly what I wanted. And right now, that's what I do. I don't have to talk about law, but then I do. I mean, it's like nobody's making me talk about law when I'm joking about it either. And so I say all of that because maybe somebody finds themselves in a roughly creative position now that for some reason they might not be coming alive in the way that their colleagues are. So, so that's all, you know, where I was. And in terms of how I got where I am, I mean, 
you know, a woman I had a crush on asked me if I wanted to do stand up. I said no. She then was like, well, what about doing it on my show? Figuring she'd be there. I did it. And the first time I ever did stand up comedy, honestly, I felt like I was having a professional orgasm. OK, which was like basically a regular orgasm. But I was 100 percent sure that I was having it. And so on that basis, truly, I mean, a year and a half later, I would leave, you know, and we can fill in whatever details, but I feel like I feel like I've been going on for a little. So that's that's all true. I love it. And I, I just want to personally relate to a couple of parts of what you're sharing. First of all, Please. making important changes because a woman I have a crush on too. I've started oh my God. I've tried things for the first time that I'm scared of, like particularly dancing, which is an important thing for me. I got into dance because of a woman I had a crush on. And yeah. then she's long gone, but I'm still dancing. And so things yeah. like that. I'm really grateful. And I think that we can, that can be a really positive force for change is following that energy um, totally. too. So it's cool that you started that way. I relate to that really yeah. strongly. And I also, you know, I'm reflecting a lot on the change, the way you talk about the change you're making. My stepfather is a successful, has been a successful lawyer for 30 years and he just left law to be a nurse. Oh, and wow. So I'm thinking about how he was serving people. So you talked about your creative, mm -hmm. your creative energy, how you were still being creative. As a, yeah. as a law professor, you were writing, you were, you know, yeah. which, which kind of challenged a, a projection I had, which is law that maybe you weren't feeling very creative in it, right? you know, but it was about the fun as what I was hearing too. What is, is it fun and is coming up for you? And even if you are creatively expressed or like Steve was serve, he was helping people in his law career, yeah. but he was called to help a different way. You were called to, you were feeling inspired, like what was feeling right to you was being creative a different way. And, yeah. and yeah, is that, so I'm relating to that. And yeah, he was also just it's kind of a similar, similar, that golden handcuff, comfortable job, leaving those jobs really feel like the hardest kind of, um, big yeah. change to make to me. I mean, yeah, I, I, I can appreciate that it does. It also like, you know, I remember when I took my teaching job after being in practice and people were like, wow, you're going to take a really big pay cut, but it didn't matter in that moment. I was just like, what? Because I guess, I mean, the practical aspect was it wasn't that big a pay cut at the time. It was like I was making around the same. The difference is that I wouldn't have the ability to make as much more in the future as if I like made partner, which I was never going to do. And so I was like, OK, uh, that seems theoretical and didn't really make an impact. And I guess like, you know, the practical aspect of my leaving my professor job was that I did get a buyout, um, which I, I've definitely like talked about before, but like, you know, I, I'm currently writing the story of that in like pilot television show form. And one of the notes that I've gotten is like, don't put the buyout in the pilot. Um, and it's like, I get it from a literary standpoint because we want to see, you know, the character make a choice that's bold. Yeah. And like having a buyout makes it safe. Um, and I have a thing where it's like I, you know, in my stand up too, not just like writing for screen is like I want to tell the true story. But also, you know, as I've gotten like, I don't know, older as a stand up comedian, I recognize that there are moments that it's like helpful you know, to, to take the truth and embellish it or take the truth and make it a punchline in a different sort of way. So anyway, all of that to say, 
it is true I got a buyout. It's also true that the buyout and, and the technical piece of it is just I had a tenured position. And so in order for me to leave my job, um, I had to be bought out of my job. I mean, I guess I could have left, but like the technical piece of it was just my school at that time was having this budget moment that caused the dean to offer buyout packages to all tenured faculty. I was recently tenured. And so despite the fact that a, a moment like that isn't really designed for someone in their early 30s, as I was at the time, um, you know, to save money and like the budget or whatever, it did technically apply to me because of my recent tenure. And so I took it um, because it lined up, you know, in the stars with this like moment that I was having in my life. And I had thought about leaving, but I, I didn't think about it in like a hundred percent real terms because I was scared. You know, I mean, I had a job for the rest of my life, like couldn't be more secure. And then this buyout moment happened independent of anything to do with me. And I couldn't help but think that like, you know, maybe this is a moment when, I mean, I happen to have a very narcissistic religious belief system, which is to say that I believe that there's a God and I believe that he is very interested in the specific details of my life. And so this moment I was like, oh, well, this whole university budget crisis is because of me. Because, you know, God wants me to be a comedian. And this is what, you know, he or she or they decided is the, the tipping point that's going to get me to actually do it. Um, so whether or not that's true, the other stuff is true. And I took the buyout, which essentially was, you know, not enough money to never have to work again or even close, but enough for me to interpret that like the universe or whatever was sort of conspiring to get me to do what I wanted to do anyway. Yeah. Thanks. I think that, yeah, it's, it's interesting to hear the different dimensions of that journey and like how the, the t about timing can be so important. I know in my career change, timing was really important and what, what's the opportunity, oh, yeah. how to do it right with whatever institution you're leaving to seems to be yeah. at stake too. And I also want to ask, um, a, a theme in your, in your standup is sobriety. And is that yeah. something that happened before this career transition or when did, does, <laughs> does that play into the story or tell me about that? Yeah. I mean, it definitely did not happen before. Um, because I mean, one of the things that I, that I think can be true, at least it was true in my instance, is like you can follow your dreams, but also your nightmares come with you. And I think in terms of sobriety, that was very much a story for me. And like, you know, I I mean, I say this when I do stand up about it, that like I don't have a terribly dramatic sobriety story. I think that what I, one of the things that I've always wanted to see more of in storytelling, like in movies or television shows is like, and, and again, there are examples of this, but I think they're fewer, um, is you see the story about like somebody who's, you know, unfortunately got a huge problem, right? They're in a gutter, they're, you know, always drunk or something like that. And I think that like what's less visible is having a, you know, a substance abuse problem that is sneaky, right? That that maybe you don't even, nobody even thinks is a problem. Like you're fine and you wanna quit, 
but um, nobody really cares that you're doing it. You know what I mean? And so like for me, I mean, I tell this story, I think I did on the show that, that you saw, I can't remember honestly, was that like I was a pot smoker for the most part in terms of my addictions. And I'm always like, like the thing about saying what drugs you do, it's like sort of a brag, you know? And I'm always like, listen, I, I did exactly the number and amount of drugs that I did, right? Like I'm not, I'm not trying to like say it's more or less than what it was. And I'm also not trying to say that I was more or less addicted. I just think that I, I am the kind of person for whom drugs are a bad idea because what drugs do to me is they make me think I know what drugs do to me. And that's the problem. Right. And so I, I think I run around my life thinking that I'm some kind of person who has, you know, like a, a God that cares a lot about what happens to me. And I think that's a dangerous combination when you take drugs, because then the, what the drugs do is they make me feel even more connected to that power and not in a good way, like in a way that I'm like, I must follow the next, you know, and, and nobody needs that. I mean, it's not fun at a party for sure, but I was a pot smoker and like, it made me paranoid and, you know, you might say me too, but I give you this example, which is that one time I uploaded a video to YouTube. Right when I upload it, the video gets a thumbs down from YouTube, okay? And then there's a knock at the door. And this was all after I smoked pot, okay? So smoke pot, upload video, thumbs down, knock at the door. And I was convinced that the knock at the door was the thumbs down person coming to get me. And so that level of paranoia... And that level of just like direct contact, almost like with the ozone layer that separates us from some sort of godlike power um, is available to me and not in a good way if I take in some substance. And so, um, so I, I stay away from it uh, for that reason. But that's not, that's not the story that, that like, you know, you see a lot when people talk about sobriety, it's like, oh, it's ruining my life and whatever. And, you know, in some ways, I mean, I, I just, I journal, I know we talked about this and I imagine we'll talk about it a little more with the habit stuff, but I think I stopped doing drugs because I would journal the next morning about how bad I felt about whatever drugs I had done the night before. And after like a year and a half or however, I don't remember exactly how long it was of that pattern, doing something, then the next morning journaling about my regret. I was like, I think I could have more interesting journal entries if I stopped doing the thing that then I have to, or I convince myself I have to write about all of the next morning. And so what, what if I took this away, what layer of myself would become available to me if I'm no longer able to write about how bad I feel about that? I'm noticing um, that pattern in myself and others too, of just getting people who are sober or friends who are tired of it, tired of the shame the next day, tired yeah. of the, the way it affects, you know, I hear you describing, it affects your consciousness and the way you're feeling about yourself, these kind right. of impacts. And I also noticed too, I have a lot of creative friends and I'm, I consider myself creative and we're creative yeah. about our substance relationship too. We, we think because we don't look like a media portrayal of uh, substance abuse or, 
uh, addiction right. that, that we're not. And in fact, there's all kinds of reasons to be sober. Um, and you named a bunch of the ones that relate, I, I relate to. And yeah. now that you are sober, I'm curious, how is it, like, how has it been since, since getting sober? Has it been easy? Has there been more, what are some of the effects for you? Well, I, yeah, it, it, it's definitely made things better. I would say it's easy. Um, and not because, I mean, I think that like one of the things about the word easy is it's, it's more complicated. I imagine that you understand what I mean about this. And I guess like, like it allows me to live my life with more ease and I happen to not miss it. And the happening to not miss it, I don't know how I achieved that. I think it was spending the time really thinking about where the, you know, the transmitters in my brain that caused me to want to have it lay. I don't know because, because that, that process, and I'm always, you know, I feel simultaneously very confident about it because I could be around people smoking pot and not, I know that I don't generally put myself in those situations, um, which also helps. And I think that there was like one time that I was watching an episode of high maintenance at, which is a show, you know, a lot about weed smoking and I felt like, wow, there was something about the, you know, the way that it was glamorized weed smoking on that episode that made me want to smoke weed. And I found an AA meeting and I have that relationship with AA meetings where I didn't get sober through AA. I think AA is amazing. Um, and I've gone to fellowships, you know, I was in Debtors Anonymous and that was helpful for me because I used to do a thing where I would like get in a kind of manageable, but sort of intimidating amount of debt. And then heroically in some sort of Herculean effort, get myself out of it. And I did that like maybe two times. And I was like, I think that this is enough of a pattern. And I did the thing where I like invented debtors anonymous in my head by Googling. And thankfully I didn't actually invent it and it it exists. And it's like modeled on, you know, alcoholics anonymous and whatever. So, so I've done that. I also went through, um, Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous when I went through this breakup that really like just did me in in uh, 2016, which was also around the time I was doing Debtors Anonymous relatively actively. And I talked to one of my Debtors Anonymous friends about how sad I was about this breakup. And the friend was like, you know, it sounds like you're going through, she said, withdrawal, which is a term that they use, you know, borrowing from the AA terminology Uh, about substance abuse withdrawal. And they interpose that onto discussions of relationship. And I had never heard about it that way, but she was like, you know, there's this meeting, it's down the hall on a Tuesday. It was a Sunday when we were talking. So, you know, she's like, I go to it. And so I met her at the Tuesday meeting and it was really helpful. And, you know, that that was something because I used to be in patterns that were like, you know, I would, I didn't know how to disaggregate and differentiate between somebody not wanting to go out with me and somebody who was attractive. I thought that they were the same and in not that, you know, it wasn't that I said that out loud and thought, yes, I'm correct, but I don't think I was quite aware of it yet. 
And going to SLAA, Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous, really helped me to not only become aware of that, but to sort of process the symptoms that might be smaller and harder to notice that generate that overall effect in one's life that was, you know, I, I mean, it was just like not good for me. I'm like, well, I'd rather be able to love someone who also loves me back, you know, and I knew that, but I also wasn't able to like emotionally get there. And I think that that's, that's been the way that, you know, anonymous programs have been helpful to me is the literature because the literature is smart and, you know, sometimes says something that you, you really need to hear on a day that you watch an episode of high maintenance and it's making you want to smoke weed. Um, but overall, you know, I, I just kind of was like, I want to have an amazing life. And I think that I deserve an amazing life. And I say that with some self-consciousness because it's like, and why? But for whatever reason, you know, and, and I think you deserve one too. I mean, you, Jake, you, you, anyone listening, like, why not? You know what I mean? Because I may not get one, but I, if I can notice that something in my life is causing me and I can change it, right? Because that's the serenity prayer is to know the difference between the things you can change and the things you can't change and take the things that you can change, right? The serenity prayer is said with a lot less, I don't know what this is, energy than this. It's like, you know, sort of muted. But but anyway, taking the things you can change and actually having the courage to change them, you know? And, and I think that that's been very powerful for me. I mean, not to say that the journey is all done. You know, I, I don't think it ever is. But once I become aware that there's a practice in my life and I'm like, I could change this. I might not be ready. I might have to journal about it until I'm sick of reading my journal entries all about it or even writing them. But I know I can. And that's that's, I think, really the awareness that brought me to sobriety, which again, I think is a little bit of a different story than an intervention or you're, you know, you lose everything or whatever. And, you know, I, I feel very grateful that that hasn't had to happen for me to get serious, like to, to wise up, you know, about stuff that was hurting me. Um, but again, I mean, it's a different story and I, I would love, you know, to tell it in all sorts of ways. I want to watch that show. I would love to act in it and write it. I'd watch that show and I, I see that as sort of awakening moment. I see happens for everybody in a different way when they decide mm -hmm. to celebrate themselves and their life and li live their best life, make that the goal. And I notice that there's a, a common theme with observing in the world, not just my observation, but I've taken of, um, from others of whether it's the debtors anonymous you talked about or the love, the loving thing or the love addict or the substances. Yeah. All of these things to me, one common th thread they have is that they simplify our lives in a way, right? So when we're when I, someone chooses yeah. to take on a lot of debt unnecessarily, because some people take yeah. debt on, there's all kinds of things with debt happening that are long, another podcast. But when someone kind of yeah. does what I feel like you're describing of finding themselves in this debt they have to work out of, suddenly it becomes all about getting out of the debt. Life is focused yeah. in. When you're a, an addict, a substance addict, it's about getting the drug, taking the drugs, being a hungover and recovering. It's this cycle that simplifies life. And it's the yeah. same too with the love where you're fixating on something outside yourself, someone outside yourself as a solution instead of, you know, all, all of these, I see them as having various reasons of, uh, but a common 
a causality of escape can be part of it or of simplifying the world. And when I, th- I hear you make that choice, and I talk a lot about this with my uh, good friend Drew, we talk about how we talk about how part of the joy of clean living and sobriety and doing you know, living living our best life has been celebrating that, enjoying that. You know, it's its own kind of virtuous cycle and loop that happens where sobriety and health become uh, something that it's just this thing to celebrate and feel good about and feel like yeah. this is what I desire. I'm craving this. This is this kind of feeling is the, is my, is my goal now. And so I think there's a way like I put that up higher and maybe that's its mm-hmm. own addiction, but it seems to be a little uh, healthier one. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I mean, I remember my therapist said this thing to me before I was sober and she was like, um, I, I wrote it once and it's not something I say a lot. So I, I don't know that I'll get it exactly right. But it was something like, um, you know, you may not believe that good things can happen. It was like something about how she was like, you can be sober and good things can happen and you might not believe it. And I then answered like, I might not believe that I'll be sober. And then she answered, no, you might not believe that good things can happen. And again, I mean, I botched it and I'll now look up exactly how I wrote it, but but uh, and, and even exactly how she said it, which was all better than what I just did. But the point remains, I believe, which is I think that I only like part of my subconscious or unconscious even reason for getting into debt, you know, chasing unavailable people, um, being in a cycle of, you know, substance use that made me feel bad was in some way, I think that I didn't believe that good things could happen. Um, and that I could just accept them, you know? And uh, I mean, yeah, I, I think that that's, that's a big thing. And even now, as I say that, I'm just like, like I have this personality where I'm like, if a good thing happens, then I'm all already anxious of just like, is it gonna <laughs> be too good? What else is gonna happen? And I think that's its own self-obsession you know, that, that anybody is really caring that there's some sort of measuring that goes on with your life, you know, and also that like, yeah, there's a lot of crappy things that are happening all around the world and you are incredibly privileged. And one of the perhaps most generous things you can do other than, you know, contributing and donating to people who are far less fortunate is just not obsessing about, the fact that something bad could happen to counterbalance the good. So important. And I think that for me too, this also relates to, to build on what we're saying that these good things, I think going back to service to me, is this where service comes into the the equation for me when I'm overly focused on my own health, that becomes self-obsessed and uh, there could be egoic qualities to that, what you're talking about of a cheap personal achievement and when I think about my intentions for this podcast too, of helping other people, like, yes, I'm putting myself out there and developing, um, developing a new project that will make me feel great and interested and excited and creatively fulfilled. I also intend it. I balance that by saying, you know, I want to help people. This is of service. I feel like the yeah. same way with your comedy. It makes me laugh, makes others laugh. It's your creative calling, but it's something that brings value into the world and 
laughter is healing. Laughter isn't, uh, there's not enough of it in the world. And so I think hey. for me, service comes back in and that balances out this uh, self, I think you call it narcissism too, that comes in. Yeah. I mean, and that's one of the things that, you know, I think has helped me become better at comedy in certain moments, at least is like when I am not focused on, you know, uh, this is a Mike Kaplan is, um, uh, and, and it's brilliant, but, but to not focus on getting laughs, but instead focus on giving laughs. Um, because, you know, especially if I'm doing a show that I'm like, I really want to do well on this, then it's like all about me, which doesn't make for a good performance, you know, um, because the good performance is going to come when I'm focused on them. It's like, are you having a good time? Are you laughing? Are you coming away from this with some better feeling about your life or whatever. And I think also when I think about, you know, telling my story in a variety of other ways, it's just like, I, sometimes it can be hard for me to connect with the person who was Googling, how do I know what I want? Or how do you know what you want? Um, and, and, you know, being in a situation where I couldn't imagine making a jump to something I really wanted to do, uh, but having, you know, again, I mean, it is a, a sort of privileged set. I recognize that of people who are are not leaving their current life due to fear and whatever stories that that fear tells them, you know, and and I was in that situation. And it, it's it's not to say that there aren't less fortunate people but it is a group of people. And I would have watched a show about someone deciding whether to leave. That was exactly the content that I wanted. I wanted to see a story about somebody, you know, who not only like did that, but it's also like, Jake, you're meeting me almost, it'll be like eight close, closing in on nine years into doing standup and stuff. And you know, I'm only as good as I am, but also that's as long as I taught law in the, my entire law career was around this length. And so it's not like when I quit, I was like, not good at comedy. I mean, there were some people who were generous and maybe saw something and, you know, not to say I didn't have good moments, but it's not like I was like having these accolades. I was just you know, running a bar show that I remember my dad was like, was like, do you like your show? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, I don't. And, you know, and, and I say that like he was right, you know, about that show. And so I also want to tell a story so that people in that type of a situation, it's like, yeah, you might not be good, you know, and still there may be reason to leave. That story is so relatable too of, oh my goodness, I relate. And uh, I just see it everywhere too of the, how much fear there is um, around big changes, big chances like that. And I can just imagine that character, it's you. I mean, but I, I would watch that show for sure of um, Thank you. Uh, exploring that that fear. And it's it's just something that's, I think, universal of taking those kind of big chances creatively. And I mean, there's so many other ways that fear can come up and it's so common. So yes, make the show, please. Um, and <laughs> I'll watch it. Let's talk, uh, before we go, let's talk a little bit about atomic habits. Um, I'd like to hear first, you know, what, what's, um, jumping out at you from that book, how, what's been your experience with it? 
Well, okay. So first of all, since, so you and I met and I had listened to like up until maybe, you know, a third or so of the book. And I was so excited about it and told you about it. Um, and then I, I had a, a trip over the weekend where I was doing even more driving and I went back to the beginning, which is a thing that I do with self-help books. I really like to listen to them and re-listen to them. I think it comes from like, like I, I have a Jewish day school education. I'm also married to a rabbi and like, you know, my parents are into like Judaism and stuff like that. And I am too, but it's like, I love Judaism and I love Hashem, God for Jews. But also I'm like, the Bible's not great. Like just if we're being honest, just as a book, Okay. And I'm a hard sell on books. I'm not, I don't love reading. You know, my wife like loves to read. I don't. Okay. So I'm just saying that, but I love self-help books. And I feel like if the Bible isn't a self-help book, then what's a self-help book? And I feel like my thing with the Bible is like, okay, if God wrote it, if Moses wrote it, like if you're going to have 10 commandments, why not take the stories and everybody washing their feet in tents, you know, and all these metaphors and put them with each of the commandments. Like I have no interest in my neighbor's wife. It's not a relatable rule for me, but if maybe I saw, you know, and heard about a story that was like, Oh, well in that instance, I might, you know, she's kind of cute or whatever. So anyway, so I think that my, desire and love for self-help books and rereading them in the way, I mean, it's like Simcha's Torah every single day for me. I'm like, we go back to the beginning of the self-help book again. And so anyway, so I do that often and I do it because I really love self-help books. I like to be brainwashed by them. And so I'm a big consumer of them. And I love this Atomic Habits book, but also I do love a lot of self-help books. Like I am my best self on like week five of like an eight week self-help audible course in book form that's supposed to change my life forever, okay? And so, so Atomic Habits, I feel like was written for me. You know what I mean? A lot of people love it and it's great, but I do think it was written for me. So I, I re-listened to parts from the beginning since I saw you. And I do think it's like the smartest thing that I know of right now. Um, and I also, I would say, have taken minimal action thus far, although I did order. I mean, this is all pretty recent. Like I, I listened to it in the past few days, but I ordered a habits journal, one for me, one for my wife. And I'm thinking Rosh Hashanah, Jewish New Year, is like a good time to start with the journal specifically. Um, and I've also been doing, you know, my own kind of starting, but just in the written journal um, where you track your habits. And so, um, yeah, I think I've just been more conscious of of the way that I guess like I don't have to make huge improvements. That's one thing. And, you know, getting a little bit better every day is is good. And also the like not missing twice. That's a, a thing where it's like, okay, so I journal every day. But also when I say every day, I don't mean 100% every day. I mean, mostly every day, but like sometimes I miss for whatever reason. But he says, he, James Clear, says something and he may be quoting someone else. I don't remember that like, if you're going to miss, okay, it's no big, but don't miss twice. Like don't miss two days in a row, two workouts in a row, whatever it is of something that you're, you know, trying to cultivate as a habit in your life. Well, next year I'm going to send you for Rosh Hashanah, a four gardens journal. 
for you ah. and your wife. We'll have oh, it out yes. by then. So that'll be the next practice. And I, that's, I love about that. This book is, um, thank you for recommending it is there's sure. a lot of good strategies. It's actionable. It's, uh, it's, it helps move some barriers and make you more effective. So I think that the strategies around habits and the research he's done is yeah. really good. Like I'm using some yeah. of the strategies already. I'm halfway through after a week and yeah. there's a lot, lot to integrate. I'm going to maybe write a little bit about this book and I see, I want to reflect too. It helped me clarify how it's different too than the four gardens approach that I'm mm -hmm. working with, which the goal of the four gardens approach being more about balance and, and discovering what you want and who you are. This book's not yeah. taking you there. This book what is for the people, person who knows already the, the goals that they need to be healthy or like there's yeah. some level of it's on its own, not enough, but I think in what it's trying yeah. to do, it's extremely good. And yeah, it, and the goal is habits. It's extremely good at habits, but it's, yeah, there's still some more a visioning piece. And as a journaler, I think, you know, this too, there's more to journal about than just habits. And so I think it needs to be part of a self-help uh, regimen. I think that it's a great yeah. tool. I feel that. And like, you know, as I was, listening and, and imagining it in my own life. Like one of the things that I struggle with, with implementing, um, systems, uh, is getting buy-in from my overactive brain. Uh, because despite the fact that I, I love self-help books and systems, I also really put them through a, a quite rigorous like filter where I really need them to, to drill hard into my brain in order to get there. And so um, I quit cigarette smoking with the book, which maybe you're aware of, but like there is this book, Alan Carr, the easy way to quit smoking. And it's genius. Like, and actually in atomic habits, James clear references that, that book, but a lot of people use it to quit smoking anyway. And um, part of the thing with that book is it takes every single, at least it did for me. And, and I think a lot of other people, every single argument you would have that you want to, you want to continue smoking and breaks them apart so effectively. And so granularly that at the end of it, you really have nothing left. Like every neural pathway and I don't know how he did it, is taken care of. And so the reason I bring it up is that then, like now, quitting smoking is the easiest thing for me. I mean, every like if I watch an episode of The Old Queerest Folk and Brian Kinney, for those who know, you know, I mean, just the sexiest cigarette smoker in the planet. Um, I think Gail Harold or something is the actor's name, but like really just such such good smoking acting. And I think if I watched that show, I'd be like, well, I could, I could use a cigarette, but I won't have it. But, uh, but anyway, for the most part, I'm so sorry. Um, okay. I'm going to do not disturb and call my mother back after. Um, so, <laughs> uh, but, um, but yeah, so like, like there's that, but otherwise, it doesn't really come up for me. And I think that I say this in response to what you're saying about the incompleteness of atomic habits, because one of the pitfalls of like being someone who loves self-help for me is also being like, but I don't want to be a computer. I don't want to live my life being like, it wasn't today an amazing day. I did all of my habits and I, I want a life that 
feels free and feels lush and open and whatever. And there is something about this kind of overly systematized way of living that's the opposite of that. And I recognize, you know, because then all of them say, like, I'm just imagining, you know, James Clear. And then other people are like David Allen, the getting things done guy of just like, no, but like this frees you. And I don't doubt it. Right. However, if you also want to maintain a life where you can feel sloppy sometimes, which I think I enjoy, I don't know. Maybe that's a story I'm telling myself, but I do think so. And feel connected to your kind of habit, habit, then I I agree that you got to dig deeper in terms of like, but why do I want this? Right. And he references it. He's like, well, you got to have, you know, the list of habits that you want to achieve or the list of goals or whatever. But it, I would say, yeah, that that's like not really the focus of the book. The focus of the book is once like assuming you have that, then how do you get there? And I, yeah, I want to I want to get your full list of self-help books you're reading, too. I might do some oh, reviews wow. on these because I notice how much uh, they clarify for me in terms of. I haven't read them all. I've read some, but I, you know, I'm not a self-help uh, book uh, aficionado like you. And I think I like, I like uh, seeing, I think in a lot of ways, these books, the ones I've read are helpful reactions to the quality of modern existence of, you know, if you have a spiritual, let's say you're Jewish or you're uh, you have a yoga practice or your whatever your religion or background is, these traditions weren't created in this time period. And so there's these things, a lot of these books are talking about, for instance, technology relationships. This is a brand new challenge and we need new thinkers to emerge, to give us strategies for these sort of uh, specific problems um, that we're facing now and challenges. And I think at the same time too, that these books can, you know, they have their limitations as, as well. And I think what you're saying, Mm -hmm. I love what you're saying about how you want to feel the sloppiness and the um, you're talking about too, what you want to feel doing a self-help system. And I think about the four gardens too, as being my answer to some of that of saying, let's, what does it feel like to tend ourselves like a garden? What does it Mm -hmm. feel like to view ourselves as a living thing that isn't just a machine? Some of these are so mechanized and capitalistic that we need a view. We're not like, so a lot of people, you know, I think you, you asked the guests, the four gardens before I Listed oh, them yeah. for you. And I think uh-huh. one of your first guesses was work. And that's very common to think is work one of our gardens. And no, work is not a garden because we're talking about personal development and work will fit in to that personal development. But we're not machines built just to do a, a routine task. And, right. you know, we are, we are complex. We change every day. And so a lot of what I'm hoping to bring with the four gardens that I'm bringing is more awareness every day of, of diversity of things we can do to feel good and tuning yeah. into what we need each day to maybe let it be a little bit sloppy. Let it be, you know, some of my favorite gardeners who have the b- most beautiful gardens do some weird stuff. You know, they, they yeah. don't, they don't just follow every garden rule. There's this sort of green thumb thing that people talk about. And I, I see it in some of the best people with plants is they sort of had a, uh, they could talk to the plants. And so like, how are we talking to ourselves? How are we listening to ourselves? That these are questions that I want to investigate with this, uh, with this four gardens approach. So you're, you're really helping me with this book get there. One piece of it too, I'll bring up as well is this idea of identity that it brings Mm -hmm. up in the book of your habits are a vote for your future self. Oh yeah. So identity is a big part of this. Yeah. The compound interest thing I thought was really smart that habits are the compound interest of 
um, I don't know, personal development or whatever. Um, but even though it's smart, it's also kind of what you're saying in, in terms of that like computer and calculator mentality of a human, right? Um, where it's like, yes, if I engage in a good habit or a habit that like fits with my overall like plan for myself, then that's a vote in that direction and that's cool. But it also sort of assumes that we are like, he says this, that like we're the collection of our habits, but it's also like, yeah, but we're also humans. Right. Right. There, there's a dark side to that philosophy too of this voting, the guilt that would come of like, oh, I voted for myself to be sick. You know, I voted for myself yeah. to be unhealthy by having this when it's like, no, not everything is a democracy like that in your life. Like you can have a brownie and not be voting for yourself being unhealthy. You know, there, there, right. there you can have things there. I don't think that he's necessarily saying that, but I think there's a way of taking that. Yeah. Some of my same criticism of the law of attraction, uh, mm -hmm. people that are an idea of that, you know, the idea that, Yes, we have control and more control than we give ourselves in our lives. But that theory has the idea that, you know, let's say we do get sick, we get cancer, that somehow we attracted that through our yeah. thoughts and it's a personal. Right. And I think it takes personal responsibility too far. And I think that theory too can create, when it gets taken to the level of guilt, which I think it doesn't need to be. Um, that, yeah. That's the dark side of it, of these um, empowerment theories to me. Yeah, I I understand that. Yeah, there's a, there's a book that I was that I've actually, I've listened to it a lot of times. It's called, It's Not Your Money. And it's about money, but it's also about more than that. And it's the, the most interesting piece of it. The author is Tosha Silver. And I believe it's an Audible exclusive. Um, but anyway, is it's about creating a life of abundance and financial abundance is like what she primarily discusses. But uh, the most interesting piece is sort of like, where she comes at the literature about um, the law of attraction and manifestation culture. And she talks about sort of, you know, the dark side of it that you're talking about in what you just said, Jake, which is like, okay, so if I have a thought, then it's going to bring, you know, God forbid some horrible fate to me. And I created it because I manifest everything. And, um, and she, she just is like, what if that's like not a thing? just saying. And also what if we really, the key is offering that's like the gist of the book. And I'm not, you know, I'm not like going through all of the steps where she kind of goes through the rationale of it all, but I do find it fascinating. Um, you know, just that somebody's commenting on manifestation and being like, like, cause basically her story and this I resonated with is she's like, I was an anxious kid. And she also is like descended from Holocaust survivors as I am four out of four grandparents, not bragging, but just saying, but anyway, so she would talk about how, when she was a kid, um, you know, she was afraid of impending doom all the time. And I relate to that like so hard that it's uncomfortable, but in any event, she was like, and then when manifestation culture came along, it's kind of the same thing. It's the same thing as being like, oh my God, everything's going to, fall into the earth at every moment, but the opposite that now I have such control over my thoughts that rather than, you know, making planes crash, I am, you know, creating my abundant future, but I have to focus on it every, she always uses the, the word blessed, 
which I think is funny because she kind of means fucking. Um, can I curse here? Yeah, I don't yeah, curse very good. often. But, uh, but I think it's funny. So every blessed day, I've listened to the book a lot. And it's like, you just want to say every fucking day. But like Audible was like, the book will sell better if you say blessed. I don't know. I don't know if that, that happened. Maybe she's like, no, I say blessed. Um, fuck off, Liz. Um, bless off. But anyway, wouldn't that be better to say when people sneeze? But um, so all of that, right, uh, I think is is a powerful message because well, number one, it's just like, well, what if what if offering is the answer, which I'm like that that seems cool. And basically, you know, in terms of like what it means for financial abundance, like the very short story of that book is like give everything away because it's not yours anyway. And, you know, you will get more. And honestly, I've done it and it kind of works. That's that just moved to the top of my list, that book. I'm going to read that one. So that's something I really enjoy about our. I think this is a good pattern. So far as our yeah. book recommendations and our friendship here. Oh so yeah. Let's keep this going. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to get that one next going. Um, if you want to do that book, because that one is a, a true eight week system. And so if you tell me when you're starting, then I'll redo it. Cause I really enjoy it. It's not hard. It's like not that long of a book. And so you're just supposed to like only read one chapter a week um, for eight weeks, but you're supposed to listen to it like a lot and say this prayer and it's a whole thing, but I live for it. So I'm happy to redo it at any time. I could use awesome. the money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's do it. Um, if you, I'll, I'll let you know when I get started on that. We can, okay, good. We can do it. Maybe check in and do a little, little yeah. recording after we, after we read it. It would be fun to oh, that's do, fun. do a little yeah. review of, of it. And, um, yeah, I think that's so, that's so fascinating to, to reflect on these systems and, you were saying about, um, there was one piece I wanted to return to. It was around um, with manifesting and money. Oh, it's just about when we give our thoughts so much power, of like putting our thoughts in control of the power. I feel like when it's, it's, it's a really like catch 22 for people when I notice why do we need meditation so much in the society? You think mm -hmm. about like our minds are so stimulated, so over, we, like we're yeah. not, we're not a culture that's in control. I don't feel myself coming from a place of being in control of all these thoughts bouncing around. And then to sure. give those thoughts to make it like so high stakes that these thoughts yeah. are going to ruin or make or break you. Any one of them is just really kind of cruel, I think to do. And let's bring it yeah. back to like finding peace in our mind first. I think that's, that's the space of growing, but I know we're going a little close to an hour here. So I also wanted to take a minute just to, just to say, well, Mazel Tov on the new, Oh, thanks. Uh, pregnancy and the baby going on and like just, yeah. And this has been, this has been an amazing conversation for me. I'm really, I really love Damn. talking to you. It's just the hour like flew by for me here. For me too, Jake. Yeah. And I'd love to do this again with you and I can't wait to see yeah. some more comedy. Is there anything you want people to know about how to find you or to things coming oh, up you're yeah. working on? Yeah. Um, well, here's my social security number and my address. Um, <laughs> no, I, uh, I'm uh, at Liz Glazer on most things like Instagram and TikTok at Liz Glazer and then um, at Elizabeth Glazer on Twitter. But then, you know, www.dearlizglazer.com uh, is the most comprehensive way to find me. Amazing. I can't wait to do this again. This has been like, thank Same. you for sharing that. It's been so fun oh. talking to you. And Same. I'm just excited about yeah everything we're going to talk about in the future. And yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. This was wonderful. All right. Have a great day, Liz. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Bye.